Saudi women are taking STEM fields by storm. We'll talk about why, and we'll also talk about why I do not think that critical race theory, as much as I hate it, why I don't think that it should be banned. Hey, it's Lucas Scrobot, and you're listening to The Lucas Scrobot Show, where we uncover purpose, pursue truth, and own the future. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood, and I'm glad that I get to spend it with you. It's episode 235, June 27th, 2021. This show is actually brought to you by other listeners and viewers like you. And if you get value from this show, we ask very simply to give the value back to the show that you got from it, whether that's $1 for an hour of listening, 50 cents, whatever value you feel that you are getting out of the show. And if you're not getting any value from this show, you might want to rethink why you're even listening to it then. If you're just wasting time and it's just not giving any value, then please listen to something else because you're wasting your life. Well, there there's some ways that you can give value back to the show. One is going to the website, lucasscrobot.com and clicking the appropriate support button. And you can give your hard, cold fiat or a more interesting way, the way that I give back to the podcast that I listen to is by giving value for value by streaming Bitcoin while I listen. And you can do that on select apps that are Podcast 2.0 certified. To find one of these new podcast apps, you can go to newpodcastapps.com and find a player, a podcast player with a value tag. There are apps like Podfriend, which I like, Breeze, which is one of the ones I use the most, Sphinx, and PodStation. And the great thing is, when I listen, knowing that I'm giving one cent or two cent per minute, it's, it's not even a lot. It's like a cent a minute. When I listen, I'm actually, it does something different in my mind. I actually engage with the content more than if I'm just passively listening. So if you want to get more value out of the show, think about giving one or two cents per minute, which is, I mean, come on, that's nothing. So value for value. On today's episode, we are going to be talking about value for not value or not value for value, which is critical race theory. If you have listened to the show for any amount of time, you would know how badly it gets underneath my skin. Now, critical race theory has become really a catch-all for many things, but on the baseline of it, it's seen, it's rather than seen people as individuals we view and we judge people as groups. And it's looking at, at the entire world as systems that we are victim to, that we, we really don't have agency, whether you're the oppressor or the oppressed, to operate in the world. And the way forward, according to critical race theory, is to tear down all the systems, burn it all down to the ground, revolution, revolution, revolution. Now, that is the language that we're seeing in America, and it's really come to the forefront of culture in the last year. But even before that, I heard in my conversations the same ideology, maybe using different words, here in the Middle East, North Africa, India. They're all the words that they're using are different. They're talking about colonialism. Now, there are a lot of problems with colonialism. There's problems with there's French, Spanish, British, German colonialism. There was Ottoman colonialism, Arab colonialism, uh, 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 Mongolian, Chinese colonialism. There's been so many different types of colonialism. But the the type that I hear talking about is really equating colonialism with capitalism and not just capitalism, but free market capitalism. And the sort of things that I hear are floating around the intersphere of, of communications, you know, the internet, the things that I hear is, you know, decolonize your bookshelf, decolonize your mind, decolonize your wardrobe. I see posts saying, well, if you show up on time, well, that's an, an attribute of whiteness and 
you should decolonize that. You should you should free yourself from these these attributes of whiteness, which I think is on its face like that is I mean how racist is that thinking that someone's ability to show up on time has to do with whiteness well it came from the enlightenment and this and this and capitalism you know with the bell that made it ring and you had to show up to the workplace on time and if not you got penalized it's like okay but I know everyone that I know (laughs) they're not white and they show up on time because it's a thing of respect. It's not a thing of whiteness, but what, what this movement does, and it's connected to socialism. It's connected to to neo Marxism, to Marxism. It's connected to postmodernism, where the, where it says there is no objective reality. It is only uh, the entire world is just a power struggle between classes or genders or sexes and. And if that's all there is, if it's just a power struggle, then it's, well, how do we win in this power struggle? How do we, how do we level the playing field in this power struggle rather than seeing that there are such things as competence that causes people to succeed? You know, in, in America currently, Asians are outperforming pretty much any other uh, ethnic group. And when I say Asians, I don't just mean Koreans, Chinese, or Japanese, but I mean Indians, I mean Pakistanis, they are outperforming the majority of the population in America because they value education and they work hard. But what, honestly, and again, this is what I mean, like it's mind-blowing to me, but what they say is, well, that's because they've they've embraced whiteness and they're they're internally suppressed by their whiteness, and that's why, because they're using strategies of whiteness to get ahead in the world. It, maybe they're just studying hard, and they're working harder than other people to get into colleges, to get good grades, to find better, better jobs and positions. Maybe it has nothing to do with whiteness or the color of their skin, but maybe it has to do with the culture that their family put into them the culture that their family nurtured and said, you're going to work hard and you're going to get a good education because that is a path to freedom in this life. But it, it, I, I, I can't even, I can't even rant anymore on that. It, 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 what I hear though is this <laughs> is just so crazy. People want to undermine these capitalistic systems free market systems in the argument that they're oppressive. When really, when we, when we look for a moment at what's happening in Saudi Arabia, we can see that it is these open free market systems that is really a driving force causing so many women to enroll themselves into STEM fields. And I think it's amazing. I just, I'm just so excited. Just wait till we read the stats on what's happening in Saudi Arabia with women in STEM fields. And it's shocking, especially when you compare it to the rest of the world. But this anti-capitalism, anti-free market thing, it will be the detriment of these amazing things that are happening right now across the world when it comes to when it comes to the global population that's in extreme poverty versus not will send us hundreds of years back to the past. Speaking of, there was an article this week from the Adam Smith Institute, and he writes about is capitalism. The title is, is capitalism to blame for hunger and poverty? Well, actually, no, it's not. Who would have thunk? He writes, before capitalism, most of the global population were living in extreme poverty. From 90% of the world's population was in extreme poverty in 1820, 200 years ago, 90% of the globe was living on less than $2 a day. And now, 2021, that number has fallen to 10%. 10% of the globe are still in extreme poverty. Ferdinand, a famous French historian, wrote a definitive work on the social history of the 15th to 18th centuries, including people's diets. Now get this, this is 
this is what life was like before open free markets, before the industrial revolution, before all these things that right now a lot of people are railing against as saying, well, this is just you know another institution of racism and slavery to, to keep people down, these capitalistic free markets societies. And I, I want to emphasize free markets because later on we're going to be talking about the free market of ideas, which is equally important and it was an, an equal value not only in the Enlightenment, but it was it was a value that it was embraced, which caused the scientific method to explode and to be productive and to move us into an industrial revolution. It, it caused competition. It caused people to trial and error collaborate this free market of ideas. So in this article, it goes on talking about people's diets in the 18th century, and he revealed that their diets largely consisted of porridge, soups, and bread made from low-quality flours, which was baked in batches every couple of months. Couple of months. And it was often moldy and so hard that it could only be cut with an axe. Could you imagine? Honey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go out back and chop our loaf of bread up that was baked three months ago that's now moldy and I have to cut it with an axe in order to serve it for dinner. Most people, even in cities, had to get by on 2,000 calories a day. Food was nothing more than a lifetime of eating bread, bread, bread again, some mush, and some porridge. Life was so decelerated, he writes, probably because of physical weakness and permanent malnutrition. They estimate that 20% of the inhabitants of England and France were not able to work at all not because they didn't want to or they were bums, but because they were so malnourished they didn't even have energy to. Now, it's important to note that he goes on to, to skim this article without getting too much in the weeds. He talks about the, the GDP of people back in the 1800s. Well, it, in, in Western Europe, the number was $1,200 per person, GDP. I mean, that's incredibly low. And in other places, such as Western countries, North America, Australia, it was the same. The rest of the world, outside of these a little bit more developed nations, where the GDP was $1,200, the GDP was 580 Dollars, about half as much elsewhere in the world. So you can look at what life was like in England in 1820 and the 1800s, and then you can compare it with the rest of the world, and you'd be like, wow, it was probably really bad. I mean, here in the Middle East, I live in the, the Arab Peninsula. I've lived in, in Oman and UAE and Kuwait, and every place they tell the same story. And the story goes, 40, 50, 60 years ago, there were no roads, no hospitals, no schools. There's nothing. There's just desert. We had camel farms. We had some goat farms. And we lived off of dates dates, and, and fishing, pearl diving. There were some places that had a little bit of trade. But really, 50 years ago, here in, in, in the Middle East, which is now you know Dubai, it's just known as a booming a booming city of business and trade, Abu Dhabi, Saudi Arabia, booming. But that's because, one, obviously because of oil, and that brought in finances for them to be able to build up their infrastructure. But really, when you look over the last number of years, and we'll talk about this in a little bit more in depth of what's happened in Saudi, it, it's free trade has really brought an explosion of technology to this region. And life 40, 50 years ago, even here, not one single person, not one single person would trade, would trade their lives for that. And, and it wasn't just the Industrial Revolution he, he writes about in this article. It's not just the Industrial Revolution that did it, but it was free markets because we looked at they go through and they look at the USSR. They look at China 
And they see that during this time of explosive growth in other parts of the world, places like China and Russia are experiencing mass man-made famines, killing tens of millions of people. Altogether, I believe 100 million people died between Russia, communist Russia, USSR, and China due to man-made calamities because of con control of the government, big government, socialism, communism. But as late as 1981 in China, while it was still closed, 88% of the Chinese population was living in extreme poverty. Now, today, China, which has embraced free market capitalism, which has caused it to grow so much, it is less than 1%. 1% of the Chinese population below poverty. Astounding in 40 years. From 88% to 1% in 40 years. Absolutely astounding. He concludes, capitalism has done more to overcome hunger and poverty than any other system in the world, and I would even say has helped women more than any other system of the world. And now, women has also, have also been helped tremendously by technological advances. Well, and this is where why we're, we're, we're talking about critical race theory and decolonizing things, because it actually... It goes against the very tools that are lifting women out of poverty or out of th their situations and opening a door of hope and opportunity, not just in Saudi Arabia, but I'm seeing it in Oman. I see it in UAE. I see it across the in, in India. I see it across the Middle East and North Africa. They see that education and free markets and their ability to compete in free markets is a pathway to the, the, the freedom that they desire. And I don't say that in a, in a you know, negative, critical, or biased way as far as freedom, but I say that just based on the statistics that we see from, from global organizations that measure people's personal freedoms in, in these regions of the world. So, but let's look at Saudi Arabia. This came out from an article from Arab News, and it says, with a growing number of Saudi women opting for careers in STEM fields, they're contributing to a more balanced gendered work environment in Saudi Arabia's industry sector, leading away for inclusivity, which is awesome. I'm so stoked. I mean, this is just great news. But when you look at the global stats, you'll see that it's not just great news. It's not just exciting that women are enrolling in STEM fields, but you begin to see that there is a deeper story going on. Worldwide, only 8% of females are enrolled in engineering, manufacturing, and construction courses worldwide. This is from 2018. Also in 2018, they said that just 28.8% of the world's researchers were women. However, when you look at Saudi Arabia, currently, women account for almost half of the total STEM pop student population. So in universities, half of the students in the STEM fields are women, which is also, it says something, because in universities, you can say, well, maybe they just have a lot of women going to universities. Nuh-uh. In universities in Saudi Arabia, only 38% of Saudi graduates are women. So you look at, okay, there's 38% of the school populations are women, but out of that, they are making up 50%, nearly 50% of the STEM fields. Well, how does that compare with other places in the world? Well, in America, women only account for 32.4% of all STEM degree recipients, 30, 32, one third. Yet in Saudi Arabia, it is one half. This is, this is to me, it, it says that there's something going on. And th this is what I think is going on. And I think this is actually a really great thing. And I've already touched on it. Education and free markets the ability for a woman to go out, get a job, 
and, and make a path for herself is honestly something that is very new to a place like Saudi Arabia where, where women were only just allowed to drive a number of years ago. And now it is His Highness Mohammed bin Salman that is pushing and driving for these reforms in Saudi Arabia at his own peril. There's a lot of people who don't like what Mohammed bin Salman is doing in Saudi Arabia, but he is one of the driving forces to revitalize and to bring Saudi Arabia into the the, the open markets. And one of the things he's doing is he's pushing for women to be able to enter into these fields. I think it's awesome. Now, most of the time, people think that the reason that we don't see more women in STEM fields is because that there's some sort of social structures that are keeping them from being able to enter into engineering degrees. But oh, shockingly, it's actually quite the opposite. It's in places like Saudi Arabia that we see there are lots of limitations on women and women, women's freedoms that because of those limitations, there's an incentive, a higher incentive to go towards degrees like engineering or, or the sciences or the maths because it gives them a way out. Whereas in egalitarian societies such as Sweden, you actually see exactly the opposite. And I'm going to play a couple clips by Jordan Peterson, who, who breaks these, it's counterintuitive, but he breaks it down. And it breaks down to the fact that we are biologically different on some extremes. And when there are no social constructs to push us or incentivize us in one direction, we actually begin to choose what our personalities want rather than choosing incentives. So here's this is a three series clip from uh, Dr. Jordan Peterson. The biggest differences between men and women in the world in terms of temperament and interest are in Scandinavia and they've maximized as a consequence of the, your egalitarian policies. What, what do you mean by that? It means that the more egalitarian your state, the bigger the personality differences between men and women. That's like the, it's- the, How do you measure that? How do you know that? Oh, well, psychologists have perfected, at least to some degree, the measure of personality over the last 30 years with very advanced statistical models. And so what you do is you offer men and women well-validated tests of preference and of personality. And you do that all across the world with tens of thousands of people in multi-country samples. And then you look at the difference between men and women and then you rank order that by wealth and egalitarian social policy. And what you find is the more egalitarian the society, the more different the men and women become. The more egalitarian the society is, the more difference, the more, the more that we're able to see the biological differences between men and women. Because when we have a, an egalitarian society, when we have a society that has an equal opportunity, where men and women have the same equal opportunity in all areas of life, instead of having, instead of being driven by incentives, we end up being driven by our interests. And so how do the interests between men and women vary? Well, Dr. Jordan Peterson. Oh, because there's only two reasons that men and women differ. One is cultural and the other is biological. And if you minimize the cultural differences, you maximize the biological differences. So I know everyone's shocked when they hear this. This isn't shocking news. People have known this in the scientific community for at least 25 years. And it's been replicated in the last month three times in three separate samples, including in Science, which is the world's greatest scientific magazine by a large margin. And it isn't a small effect, it's a huge effect. It's a huge effect. This, this clip is from 2018. And so in these egalitarian societies, the culture isn't pushing someone to a direction. But in, in a place like Saudi Arabia, the culture is, in a good way, pushing women towards these STEM fields because it is an area that they can thrive and succeed. It's very counterintuitive. But in this last clip, he talks about 
how men and women, they're very, we're very similar in almost all regards. Really, the overlap between men and women are very similar, but where we're different, the biggest area that we're different is our interest in between things and the interest between people. Men are much more interested in things. And if you're an engineer or in the STEM field, you have to be extremely interested in things rather than being interested in people. Women tend to be more interested in people by a whole standard of deviation, meaning that they are more likely to choose fields like nursing rather than when, when there's when there's an egalitarian society rather than the STEM fields. But we're seeing something very different in Saudi Arabia. Here, here's the last clip. This is especially true at the extremes. So, for example, um, on average, men are more interested in things and women are more interested in people. And that's actually the biggest difference we know of psychologically between men and women. And, and even though men and women are quite similar, all things considered, the extremes make a difference. So you imagine that in order to become an engineer, look, obviously not everyone becomes an engineer. You have to have a particular temperamental proclivity to become an engineer. You have to be extraordinarily interested in things rather than people. Well, most of those people are men. And if you want to become a nurse, well, then you have to be much more interested in people than you are in things. And most of those people are women. And so you get differences in occupational choice that are also, by the way, quite great in Scandinavia, especially in the case of engineering and nursing, that are mostly due to biological differences. And you cannot minimize that by social engineering. So, and, and it's not a bad thing. Like, look, one of the things you want to ask yourself is that, what is the purpose of setting up a society that offers maximal equality of opportunity? And one of the answers is that you maximize people's free choice. And if you maximize free choice, then you also maximize differences in choice between people. And so you can't have both of those. I love that. It, it's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing that when we minimize cultural differences between men and women, we're actually maximizing the biological differences between men and women, which essentially is saying, hey, you have free choice, the freedom of ideas, freedom of choice to pursue a path that you're actually most interested in. And because of that, we begin to see differences between the genders, even more so because that is often, in many ways, biologically driven. And that's why I find this is interesting that we're seeing an over-indexing of women because there's an incentive and that incentive is I can enter a free market. I can enter a free market. I can compete because men and women, our intellects are pretty much the same. There's really no difference between a man's intellectual capabilities and a woman's intellectual capabilities. Now, of course, that's going to vary individual by individual based on an individual's IQ, but gender is not really an indicator between who is going to be smarter. So entering STEM fields is not a matter of are, you, are women smart enough? It's a matter of are they interested enough? And if there's an incentive for freedom, then they're going to be interested enough. But the, the narrative of decolonize your your life and push back against uh, what what here in in the Middle East they call colonialism, when really what they're talking about is free market capitalism because they conflate the two, then you're actually taking away the very things that are causing society to move out of out of poverty to that you're. You're taking away the very thing that can cause women to stand up and have more freedom and have more have have a more egalitarian society. Well, this attack is not just happening here in the Middle East, but is it is moving. This ideology is moving across the globe, especially right now. We're seeing it in America. We're seeing it in the education system. We're seeing an indoctrination of critical race theory in the education system where it is becoming infused into everything that is being taught. And th this indoctrination is, 
is coloring the way that people think. And because of that, coloring the way that students see the world, coloring the way that they feel about their nation, coloring the way that they, they view morality. If, if you grow up in an environment where you're told day in and day out that there is no such thing as truth, there is no, no such thing as, as morality, and that the only thing is social constructionism and power, if you get that 10 hours a day from the time that you're six until the time that you're 18, well, what are you going to believe? So in America, there are people who are beginning to push back against these theories that are happening in their education system. But they're pushing back not with better arguments, but many people are pushing back by trying to ban them from the school. Well, here is a clip from the Atlas Society. The Atlas Society is a society that is very libertarian. Libertarians like to stay out of other people's business. They're, they like to argue with ideas. They don't want to try to control other people, but they very much say, hey, live peaceably as far as it depends on you. You take care of yourself. You take care of your household, the things that are within your domain, and don't try to control other people to, to the extent that you're able. So here's this, this first clip by Richard, Richard Salzman, who is in an interview with Dr. Stephen Hicks, who we have had back on the show back in episode 150, about around or there, right around there about a year ago. And so here's this first clip by uh, Dr. Richard Salzman on the banning of critical race theory in America. And mostly the problem, the greater root problem with in the systems that they're trying to fight, which is the government. The problem is these are government schools. And I'm not saying this kind of stuff doesn't go on in private schools, but there is a limit to how much that can be done complaining to a school board. I think we have to start thinking about fundamentally privatizing and defunding, if you will, not the police, but the public schools. And if this has to be done through more homeschooling or through more private schools, I don't think these school boards, when you think about how wedded they are to this ideology, are really going to be all that friendly. If you don't have context right now, what's happening is he, he, there's these videos going around the Internet. I didn't pull any of the clips of moms and dads standing up and at school board meetings saying, we do not want this taught in our schools and you're teaching it in our schools. And school board meetings are just, they're just shutting them down and people are getting arrested uh, for standing up to public schools and saying, we don't want this being taught. So there's a number of governors, we'll go on to this clip and explain the number of governors are actually banning uh, this from being taught within the schools. But as we'll see, it's a little bit problematic. Um, these things are filmed, which is one thing, but they're not going to be all that friendly to changing. And they can work away from and around the parents uh, very easily. And it's hard. It's hard to be a full-time activist and keep your eye on the school board, let alone joining the school board. Again, you can join a school board if you're one of 12 you're going to be outvoted. Now, there are laws like in Florida and elsewhere that are being passed that simply try to ban this. But I think of it as no different than the debates we used to have over whether to teach evolution or creationism in the school. Understand that the reason there are these conflicts to begin with is that there is this monopoly on educating your child. Now, if there's going to be, then there's going to be a fight over what the monopolist teaches. And there's a real limit to that. So I'm really uncomfortable with the idea of passing laws, ordinances that ban the teaching of CRT, because that could be used to ban the teaching of anything else. And that's the that's the kicker right there. The fact that there is a monopoly on who is teaching the kids, not just in America, but in most every part of the world. There is a monopoly, which is the public school system. It replaced the word public with the word government. It's a government school system. It's the government that's teaching who and what our kids believe. The, the government is dictating to the teachers what they can and can't teach. And then by and the curriculum that they need to teach, and then by in turn, that's going down to the students and shaping their worldview. And a lot of people think, well, isn't that the role of the government? Isn't that the role? Isn't it the government's role to say what people should and shouldn't learn? Well, again, it depends on your worldview. If you believe in, in a worldview that 
someone else should control your life, your children's lives, and all of society, then you're going to you're going to be more likely to think that. But if you believe in a worldview where it is the the family's responsibility and you believe that the individual is the supreme, supreme expression of the state, then you're going to say no. The, the the family should decide that. People should decide based on their culture, based on what they believe, based on the the religious morals that they want to teach their family. They should be able to decide that. They should be able to decide. But instead, we've abdicated that responsibility to the government. And because of that, there's now monopoly. And because of that, we now see people fighting over banning what can or can't be taught in the public school system. The And it will never, it's a battle that will never be won. And as he says in the beginning of this clip here, we need to think about moving, moving to a privatized system, starting up different systems to educate your kids, moving to homeschooling. When we lived in Kuwait, there's actually a, a huge homeschooling co-op community there in Kuwait. And a, a large number of the members of that co-op, there were Muslims who didn't want their kids in the public schools because they didn't like the indoctrination. They didn't like the drugs that were in the public school systems. And they said, you know what? We don't want our kids a part of that. We want to teach our kids what we believe. And so it, it's it's every it, it's everywhere in the world. People are making these decisions. And as he said, homeschool, especially after 2020, there is an, an article that that I, I pulled up from the American Conservative, which I think it applies to everyone right now. The U.S. Census Bureau reported that homeschooling more than doubled in 2020 and that those who increased homeschooling spanned across all demographics. Notably, among black households, the proportion of homeschooling increased slightly more than fivefold from 3.3% to 16.1% within a three to five month span period. Now, you can look at that in a couple different ways of being like, well, that's really horrible. I actually look at, at different and I say, that's great. It's great that parents are taking their kids out of these indoctrination systems and able to teach and train their kids. I think their kids are going to get a better education. Statistically, they are going to get a better education, but not all people think that. In fact, Harvard wants to outlaw homeschooling altogether. In June 2020, a Harvard Magazine article quoted Bartholet, Elizabeth Bartholet, who claims that only, quote unquote, unquote, only about a dozen states have rules about the level of education needed to be gone through for parents to be able to homeschool. She adds, quote unquote, that means effectively that people can homeschool who've never gone to school themselves, who don't read or write themselves. She also asserts that surveys of homeschool show that the majority of families, some estimate up to 90%, are driven by conservative Christian beliefs and seek to move their children from mainstream culture. Well, yeah, they do seek to remove their kids from mainstream culture because it's, it is anemic. If you look at mainstream culture, you just, just turn on MTV. I don't know if MTV exists anymore. Just look at pop music and the pop music videos that are coming out, and you can see that is the culture. Do you want your kids growing up in that culture? In conclusion, in this article, he says, perhaps the truth behind the claims made by homeschooling critics stems from the threat public schools face as parents finally recognize the facts. Public schools no longer simply teach reading, writing, and arithmetic. Instead, they indoctrinate children through critical race theory and have begun grooming them as early as kindergarten through comprehensive sexual education. Another possible reason for resistance by homeschooling critics results from parents observing firsthand America's failing public school system, while homeschoolers consistently score higher than their public school counterparts in standardized testing. The crux of the matter here is that many people do pull their kids out of school because 
One, the education is better outside of their school. Their kids are getting better attention. They're getting better grades and they're not getting the indoctrination. And it's this indoctrination that people are worried about. On top of that, there, I mean, this Elizabeth Bartlett lady, the fact that she's saying, well, you know, the fact that some of these states don't even have laws about who can educate their children means that a lot of these kids are getting educated by people who can't even read or write, which made me think of this hilarious uh, Portlandia clip. It's important to remember that many of these cops are poor, uneducated, and bad at their jobs. There's an old saying in this part of the country, and it goes like this. I can't read. <laughs> I can't. Oh, my goodness. The fact that she thinks that what people who can't read and write are going to pull their kids out of school and try to educate them. It's just, it's almost as, as sickening as saying that if you show up on time, then it's a symptom of whiteness. It's just, it's just horrible and unthinkable. And, and this also leads to us seeing this progressive ideology of critical race theory being taught across the globe because it's not just happening in America, but we're seeing it happening across Europe. So the question really comes back down to, do we move away from these liber libertarian or liberal ideas of having a free and open market of ideas and of society, or do we then choose to limit and block ideas from the public square. And if we are going to block something from the public square today, what happens tomorrow when something gets blocked by someone else who doesn't like maybe what you want to say or you want to think? So here's Dr. Stephen Hicks to weigh in on that. When we think about education, uh, fundamentally, education is about training people's minds and bodies to prepare them, uh, if we're talking about children, for, for adult life. And those of us who are good liberals in the genuine sense of liberals say, you know, education requires free minds, right? The students and the teachers and everybody involved in it needs to be able to assess the, uh, the evidence for them, themselves, try different ways of putting it together and engaging in discussion, contradiction, debate, argument, right? And so forth. And we have this idea that that's how we, that's how we learn individually and how we, how we learn socially. So education needs to be free. But then we have a mixed economy in which a significant portion of education is delivered by a political system. So it's government schooling. And we know fundamentally governments operate on the principle of compulsion, right? It's a it's a do it or, or else. So now that's to put it at a high level of, of abstraction, freedom versus uh, uh, authoritarianism or freedom versus versus compulsion. And, that, and that's the problem. Government operates based on compulsion. They say, this is what you must do. Poor, poor leadership. You know, when I look at leadership, one of the values that I believe in is do not lead by compulsion. This is a, a, a scriptural, spiritual truth. Do not lead by compulsion because if you're leading people by compulsion, you're not actually leading them at all. You're forcing them. But government has really no other choice but to lead by compulsion. And what Dr. Stephen Hicks is making here, this contradiction, is when you, as he says, when you bring it to the higher, highest level of abstraction, we're saying, well, do we want an authoritarianism, which is going to come in and say what can and can't be taught, and we're going to further perpetuate this monopoly of saying these ideas cannot be in the public square and these ideas must be, or do we want a free and open society, which is much more dangerous it can be much more frightening on the front end where there's competing ideas, where there's more than one idea that is being thrown into the mix. Because this, the one where it's liberalism, it can feel scary because we're not in control. But when you go to complete authoritarianism, the outcomes is actually much worse because eventually you'll not be in control either. Dr. Hicks continues. On the one hand, we want to say politicians 
have a responsibility to spend their taxpayer dollars wisely. If politicians have taken on the responsibility of educating America's youth, then the principle is he who pays the piper calls the tune. And politicians have a responsibility to make sure that children are actually getting educated. They owe that to the to the uh, to the to the taxpayers. And if it turns out that an anti-education indoctrination uh, belief system is infiltrating the public schools, then it Critical seems like the politicians theory. have a responsibility to step in and stop that problem. And that's that is a, a healthy impulse. The problem, though, is that it goes up against another healthy impulse, which is the academic freedom impulse. And the academic freedom says that uh, teachers and students need to be free from interference from politicians telling them what they can and can't think and what books should be read and so forth. So then Absolutely. what we have is a, is a contradiction. If the politicians are going to be responsible, they have to legislate content. But if they're going to be politicians in a free society, then they have to stay out of education in terms of dictating content. So we have a contradiction, and it's understandable that all of us are going to be torn precisely on, on that contradiction. It's a catch-22. When, you know, when I first heard that some of these governors in America were banning critical race theory, I was like, hoo-wah, like, this is awesome. Like, I'm glad that people are standing up against this. But then as I listened to this clip, I was like, you know what, this is, this is right. If, if we think that by shutting a conversation out of the public square, that it's going to win the argument, that's going to win the indoctrination war, then we're wrong because kids are being indoctrinated elsewhere. It's not just in the school system, but it's in it's in the media. It's in it's on TikTok, it's on Snapchat, it's on Instagram, it's in everything that they're consuming, even in the way that teachers are delivering it. And so we have to win the battle of ideas. What I would say in this case here is that history shows that government involvement in education is always the worst option. Right? That uh, this is precisely what Professor Salzman started to do. Uh, once the principle is in there, uh, the government can legislate content when the content gets bad enough, then it's just going to become uh, slowly but surely, other issues that are going to be subject to to government le uh, content legislation. And uh, once the government's involved, it is the 800-pound gorilla that's always led to worse outcomes, and it's a lot harder to fight back. So the other side of it then is to say, we believe in educational freedom. And yes, there has been a malignant ideological set of principles infiltrating the public schools, but we are still able to combat that the way uh, liberal-minded people should combat. We can get educated about what that set of ideologies is. We can go to school boards. We can set up alternative institutions. We can push back in whatever shape, way, or form. That's the more important principle, and that's the principle that we uh, we need to be striving for. A free society needs to do mm. its uh, its dirty work in public, so to speak. We're always going to have these arguments. There's always going to be some dangerous ideology coming along, and we always need to learn in every generation, how to identify it, how to get up to speed uh, about it, and how to argue back against it effectively. To the extent that they are banning certain ideas as ideas, right? That is a step that we do not want to take. If we want to get rid of these ideas, we need to do that the way free, intelligent, reasonable people will do it. And that is by means of educating ourselves and making better arguments. And that's, that's so important. The way that we win against these malignant ideas, these ideas that we can see, wait a minute, this is actually going to hurt the very people that it seeks to help. It's actually going to hurt society. Wait a minute, this is just Marxism and communism, socialism wrapped in new language, because that's all that critical race theory is. Critical race theory came out of the, the Frankfurt School, which after it was clear that socialism failed and socialism and Marxism was really against the bourgeoisie versus the proletariat. And they realized that Marxism is actually being quite successful. How are we going to take these nations? How are we going to perpetuate our ideologies? Well, we'll make it about race and gender and sex against one another. And if we can divide, then we can conquer. But the way that we can conquer those ideas, it's not about silencing them and becoming even more authoritarian. It's about competing with other ideas. When I was 
growing up, there were, there were ideas that were just shoved down my throat and I re totally rejected them because I could feel the authoritarianness of those ideas, of those Christian ideas that were being pressed on me. And I, I had to throw them off of myself. And we, we know the stories of those people who are sheltered for so long and aren't exposed to competing ideas. And they finally leave the home. They finally go to college and they go far off into the deep end because they never grew up in a situation where they had the ability to wrestle through these competing ideas. Now, in, in this is happening in Europe as well. This battle is going on worldwide. In Europe, Mark Rutte, the president, the prime minister, excuse me, of the Netherlands, said Hungary must either leave the EU or repeal the law which bans TV shows and other content seen as championing LGBT lifestyles for the under 18. However, some Eastern European governments refused to join the 17 of the 27 countries in a rare joint statement condemning a fellow state member. Viktor Orban, the Hungarian prime minister, said the law is about defending the rights of kids and parents and claims to be a fighter for gay rights when Hungar Hungary was under communist rule, homosexuality was punished and fought for their freedom. He says, I fought for their freedom and their rights. He said, as he arrived at the summit, so I'm defending the rights of the homosexual guys, but this law is not about that. His argument is, I'm also defending the rights of parents and children and saying, we don't want to have, I mean, this law is, it's not outlawing or banning the ideas of homosexuality or the LGBTQ agenda. It's saying we don't want you to be able to indoctrinate other people's kids through media with these ideas. Let the parents, they didn't even say that parents can't tell their kids about LGBTQ. It's saying we don't want you to indoctrinate those kids through media. And it's protecting someone's rights, not banning altogether these sorts of ideas or these, this sort of open form of communication. The article goes on. The, Mr. Root, the prime minister of the Netherlands, said they must realize that they are either a part of the European Union and this community of values, which means that Hungary— that in Hungary, no one can discriminate against and everyone can feel free on the grounds of sexuality and skin color or gender or whatever, which it, that's not even what the law is about. It's not saying that they're being discriminated against. They're saying, please don't indoctrinate other people's children via media. Yeah. It's important to realize that this, this law in Europe it's banning sexualized material aimed at children. And it's a ban that probably 50 years ago would have been supported by the majority of every European country just 40 or 50 years ago. But instead, the rainbow flag, as he writes in this, has become a flag of the globalist elites symbolizing diversity and inclusions, principles that they regard as a source of their right to rule. And this is true. These, the rainbow flag has become a symbol of diversity and inclusion, of moral positioning, saying that I am better than you, I know better than you, and therefore I am going to export this, uh, this globalist ideology, and you can't do anything about it. And if you do, we'll bully you into submission. At the end of this article, they say the European Parliament has approved the Matic report, which which defines abortion. So this is another subject, again, about the war that's happening in the culture in Europe. And they approved the Matic Report, which defines abortion as a quote-unquote human right and is essential to democracy. It has thereby defined all Catholics and pro-lifers and Muslims and anyone else who confesses to the sanctity of life and 
saying that it is wrong to kill a baby in the womb as a threat to democracy and a threat to human life. This is, this is the difference, I think, between what we see as indoctrination and authoritarianism versus the earlier solution, the earlier problem that we faced of banning CRT from all schools and seeing that we're actually, that could and will be very damaging because we're now no longer able to have a battle over those ideas. We're just trying to silence our opponents. And Richard Salzman, he talks about the dangers of silencing our opponents. If, if CRT and the public schools are the leaves on the tree and it branches out from, say, the teachers' colleges, but we know the teachers' colleges come from a more trunk-like place called the universities, and those are ultimately their ideas and the universities are rooted in you know, major philosophic figures, including those engaged in philosophy of education like John Dewey and elsewhere. So it's literally trying to stop at the leaf level uh, something that's really coming from the root level. Now, if you told someone like Governor DeSantis that, he might say, oh, oh, good, perfect, then I'll ban it also at all Florida universities and Florida teachers' colleges. And we would probably say, no, 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 that's not the point, yeah. but here is the point. You need to know where this is coming from. And it's it's okay to hack away at leaves and branches, but you have to know where it's mm. coming from. Now, it, since it's coming from this deeper level where they're literally training teachers to be racist, um, we'd have to start looking toward remedies at that level. Since there's such long lead times, since I know for a fact that critical race theory started in the 80s, got very strong in the 90s, but was still in university levels and not yet in curriculum. You see how long this could take, but that equally means that even if there's good elements in the universities today fighting against it, it too will require a lag. There'll be a lag. And, and there's so many things to break down in this point. One, it's talking about when we are just trying to take CRT out of the school, we're, we're just trying to take the leaves off of a tree, but they're just going to go back. The fruit of that tree will grow back because it is a root issue. It doesn't matter if a teacher is banned from teaching critical race theory. All they have to do is use a certain tone of voice. Ask a question in a certain way when they're teaching history or when they're teaching English or when they're teaching math. It... it it is an, a full-on ideology that has been accepted. It is a full-on worldview that has been embraced, and that worldview extends far further beyond a, a, a three-letter acronym of CRT. It's embedded in the very culture. And so what he is saying here, Richard Selzman is saying here, is spot on. We have to find the root level. What is the root worldview, and how do we Stop it at the root. How do we reform from the root? And even if we started it today, it's going to be a 20, 30-year-old, year-long journey to see the next generation not fall to prey to this. And this is why this last point is exactly why I framed everything that's happening right now with, which I think is amazing, what's happening in Saudi Arabia with, with nearly 50% of the women being in STEM fields. Because what's happening currently is we might not be seeing right now in the Middle East and some of these other nations a, a push for critical race theory or these anti-free market ideologies. And there really are anti-free market. They're anti-free market of ideas. They're anti-free market of libertarianism, of you being able to make the decisions that you feel is best for your life, the teaching your kids the things that you feel is best for your kids to know. It goes anti-free market, and it goes to authoritarian control, which will lead to the greater demise. And we might not be seeing it today, but as, as he said, there's a 40-year lag and we're going to see this ideology over the next number of decades explode in other areas in the world. And we have to do what we can do today 
to right this ship so that the next generation can survive. And one of the main points that they touched on is that it comes back down to individual responsibility, individual agency, back to the parents, back to private institutions, and moving away from monopolized systems that have the ability to indoctrinate a mass amount of kids, rather than you taking the ability to train your kids up in the way that you believe that they should go. If you if you are getting value from this episode, and I assume if if you're here an hour in, hour into the episode, that you've gotten some value out of it. One way to get more value out of it is by sharing it with a friend or a colleague or your spouse, and then talking about it, having a free exchange of ideas. Because as we talk about it, it sharpens our knowledge and our ability to really understand what does this mean and how can we take action in our life. Because remember, the first job of, of leadership is defining reality. And when we talk about things and we share them within our community, we're creating a shared language and we help to define reality and help to define where we are going as a community. Okay, don't go away. We're gonna be right back with our Weaver and Loom segment. Welcome back to Weaver and Loom, a part of the show where we take ancient wisdom and we weave it in with our everyday lives so that we can own our future and weave our destiny. Today's quote is by an ancient Greek poet, Archelaus of Peros, who he wrote, the fox knows many things, but the hedgehog knows only one big thing. Now, to break this down, it takes a little bit of explanation, but I, I got this uh, originally from a book by John Lewis Gaddis, who wrote on, uh, on Grand Strategy, a brilliant book. I love strategy, so I knew I would love this. And here's a, a clip of him explaining what the difference is between a hedgehog and a fox. In this hedgehog knows one big thing, so has one big objective, and may well have a single framework for looking at the world, um, a single lens for looking at the world. Uh, a fox will know many things, will be aware of many competing priorities, may have many different strategies for achieving things. But a fox can lose a sense of direction because there is no one big central idea. And so uh, uh, an unfocused fox is just uh, spinning wheels and uh, operating off in a bunch of different areas. The obvious solution is to find ways to be both. The obvious solution is to find ways to be both. So he talks about the hedgehog has one big idea. It's centralized. It, it pulls all the resources to go in one direction. It doesn't see the, the pitfalls and the nuances in different ways. But the fox, he says, it knows many things. It's filled with many ideas. It's, it can see all the potential problems. It knows everything that might come from the past, the histories of the past that could be a warning for the present. It can see the, the, how if we go in this path of strategy, we could hit these other pitfalls and we might need to pivot. The answer that he gives is we need to be both. We need to have our our minds set on a singular vision. We need to be driven in a certain direction. And then as we move in our strategy towards that direction, we need to be agile. We need to be like a fox that sees things from different angles, that accepts warnings, and that's cautious in different ways, that's sly, that's making sure that it's getting, it's being aware of its situation and navigating those problems appropriately. Another way that I've, I've heard this explained is the difference between centralization and decentralization. I know here on the show, we talk a lot about decentralization. I like decentralization. I think it's just an amazing, powerful thing. But I've been told many times, and I think it's true, there is a, a, a certainly, there is a place for centralization, a centralization of vision, a centralization of organization, of 
of standing people up, not just hoping that other people will stand themselves up. And the way that we can move forward in our individual lives, as families, as individuals, as societies, as whoever you're leading, and in society at large, is by marrying the two, by having a centralized vision that is moving something forward while at the same time allowing people to be agile, allowing people to operate in decentralized ways to solve the problems that they're uniquely gifted and capable to solve. And we can see this all the way back into the issue that we have with monopolized education system, government education system. It is good that... I think it's good that the government gives some sort of boundaries and guidelines for what's, what an education system should comprise of. We can't just have kids growing up not knowing how to read and write. I think it's good that there's a centralization, standardization, a standard to say this is the standard we want people in our society to meet. And yet, if we go too far and we monopolize it too much, then the whole thing dies and collapses in on itself because it can't see the pitfalls and we begin to try to regulate everything from a centralized place. And that's where we can find the strengths of decentralization and independence, homeschooling. And that applies to other areas of our lives. That's all for this episode. Thank you so much for being with me here on the show today. If you got value out of the show, I ask you to go over to the website and give value in the measure back to the show or consider picking up a new podcast app from newpodcastapps.com and share this with a friend. Have a free exchange of ideas. That's all. Remember, go out this week, uncover your purpose, pursue truth, and own your future.